This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to see such a such a large turnout today. Have a full zendo this morning. Uh, we have a tradition of starting by uh, just introducing ourselves by name, just saying our names, just so we have a so we know who's here with us today. Uh, so I'll, I'll I'll start, and then maybe we can just go go around. Uh, I'm Dan. Jen. Todd. Avelina. Kathy. Larry. Teresa. I'm Jeffrey. Gay. Jade. Tizan. Victoria. Nico. Tom. Ute. Hannah. Googie. Gia. Julie. Michael. Chuck. Gabe. Tiffany. Meg. Nora. Benjamin. Lori. Casey. Uh, so I thought I would talk a little today about uh, Buddha, why Buddha started Buddhism. Maybe a little bit about why his teachings have lasted as long as they have. Um, why people like us are still uh, here talking about them and practicing them uh, today. Uh, it turns out that there is some controversy about exactly when Buddha, Buddha lived. Uh, the different schools of Buddhism in Asia have their own ways of dating uh, the Buddha's lifetime. At the time of the Buddha, people weren't particularly concerned with, with dates and the stories of his life uh, don't really mention any current events that we would be able to, to cross-check to determine exactly when he lived. And uh, the disagreements are actually over, over 100 years. Um, much later, uh, some Greeks visited India uh, after Buddhism was well established. The Greeks were more concerned with calendars and dates. Uh, and so a lot depends on exactly how long elapsed between the Buddha's life and when, when these Greek travelers visited uh, King Ashoka. But here in the West, we mostly agree that, that he lived around 500 years before BC. And really, no matter how you count it, it's a very long time ago, two and a half millennia. 
And what that means is that the Buddhist Sangha, uh, the community of monks and nuns and lay followers, uh, is actually the world's oldest surviving institution. Uh, there is no company or university, uh, no government, no army uh, that has lasted as long. This Buddhist Sangha that we're a part of has, has outlasted all of them. Before there was a Sangha, of course, there was just Buddha. And regardless of when he lived, uh, all the traditions agree that he was born as a prince uh, in what is now Nepal and then raised nearby uh, in northeast India. And that he led a highly sheltered life uh, in a palace uh, with every luxury of the time. His mother died in childbirth, uh, but her sister stepped in and raised him as her own, as the king's second wife. And uh, he had a very happy childhood. He married quite young. He had a child himself, uh, all while secluded in these very lavish uh, palace grounds. He had three different mansions, one for each of the Indian seasons. Uh, and by all accounts was, was happy. But sometime around the time of his 29th birthday, he ran away from this life and became a wandering ascetic. Many of you have probably heard the story of, of what triggered this escape. He started to have doubts about living this life in the palace. And he convinced one of his servants to sneak him out into the surrounding village to see how the rest of the world lived. And there he witnessed for the first time the ravages of sickness, old age, and death. And at that moment, he realized that life was not just fun and games and pleasure palaces, and decided to pursue a purely spiritual life. And he spent the next six years crisscrossing the Indian countryside, practicing all sorts of austerities with various teachers. And he tried everything from fasting to self-flagellation, anything that was the exact opposite of this life of luxury he had been living. But eventually he got fed up with that too and felt that that also wasn't leading him any closer to answering life's big questions. And so at last he decided just to sit by himself and meditate, much like we have this morning. He sat under a tree instead of facing a wall, as we do. But otherwise, his practice was much like ours. And he sat like that all night until he saw the morning star. And that's when he had his big epiphany, his awakening, when he finally earned the title of Buddha, meaning the awakened one. And honestly, Buddha's first inclination that next morning was to stop at that point. He had accomplished his great goal after all these years of effort. He was fully enlightened now. He could finally end his ceaseless searching. And he thought about teaching. 
But he decided, no. He was fine with just being a Buddha and not a teacher. In a sense, his reason for not teaching was the same reason many of us have for not trying something new. He thought he might fail. The way Buddha explained it later, he felt his newfound path was, quote, hard to see and hard to understand, and that if I were to teach it, others would not understand me, and this would be wearying and troublesome to me. In other words, teaching the Dharma, his newfound truth, would be hard, and it probably wouldn't work. And that would be a bummer, <laughs> even for an enlightened Buddha. Considering thus, he concluded, my mind inclined to inaction rather than to teaching. And I've always thought that would be a great way to turn down anything someone asked me to do. My mind inclines to inaction. <laughs> I think we can all understand where he was coming from. None of us like to fail, and trying something new is always a risk. And legend has it that it literally took divine intervention to change his mind. The god Brahma descended to earth and literally begged Buddha to share his wisdom. Perhaps not everyone would understand, Brahma agreed, but some would. And those precious successes would make up for any failures. After some pleading, Buddha was convinced. And once he started teaching, he could hardly stop. In the end, he taught for 45 years continuing right up until his death. His last lecture was delivered literally from his deathbed as he was dying. It just took a little pushing to get him over these self-doubts. And so I wonder sometimes why have Buddha's teachings survived so long, even when Buddha himself wasn't sure anyone would understand them. And I think there's a few reasons. First, Buddha was very practical. He spoke about the world as it exists around us, the world as we know it ourselves. He tried to help people solve actual real-world problems in their lives. He gave very practical exercises, like the ones we've done here today, for how to live a happier and more awakened life. People would often ask Buddha more abstract questions. They would ask him if he believed in an afterlife. What would happen after they died? But Buddha generally brushed these aside. It's just not important, he argued. He compared focusing on these questions to a man who's struck by an arrow, but won't let the surgeon treat him until he knows the name of the person who shot him, what family he came from, whether he was tall or short what kind of bow he used. Those may be interesting questions, perhaps, but the most important thing is just to take out the arrow. And so similarly for all of us suffering in the world, whether or not there's a next world is just idle curiosity and can wait. Second, Buddha was quite flexible. As I mentioned, he himself tried all sorts of approaches before he settled on what became his path. He studied with contemporary masters. 
and learned what he could for them before setting off on his own. He rejected India's caste system, insisting that good and bad qualities are found among all castes and that anyone could become enlightened. He welcomed those others called outcasts or untouchables into his community and insisted that no one should be an outcast by birth, but only through immoral deeds. He opened his path to anyone, anywhere. His dharma was a universal truth. And although Buddha made lots of rules, and some of that was part of his being practical, in his final sermon, he suggested that future students could abolish any of the minor ones, and he left it up to them, to us, to decide which of these were minor. He was willing to adapt his teaching to different times and places and to admit when he was wrong. Early in his teaching, he refused to ordain women, but eventually his foster mother convinced him that this was a mistake. He was open to new experiences, and he kept meditating all his life practicing what he preached. Third, Buddha was positive. Buddha believed in himself. He believed that he could find a path beyond suffering. And after that first hesitancy to teach, we don't see him prevaricating. We don't see a lot of indecision. And Buddha also believed in us. Dwell with yourself as your own island with yourself as your own refuge, he told his followers. Trust yourself. And that's a message many of us want to hear. But of course, being practical, flexible, and positive was no guarantee of success. Lots of people have those qualities. And lots probably did 2,500 years ago. Most of those people, almost all of those people, will never start something with the longevity of Buddhism. In the end, the ultimate success of Buddha's teachings depended on the quality of those teachings themselves. Buddha saw a problem, suffering, and he found a solution. And that solution worked. <coughs> and so what was this solution that Buddha found? In many ways, although Buddha's sermons in the end add up to thousands, tens of thousands of pages, his answer turned out to be incredibly simple. Buddha asked us to pay attention. Another way to think about or to describe paying attention is practicing mindfulness. And you probably hear a lot about mindfulness these days, both at temples and, and in the wider world. And mindfulness was part of Buddha's teachings from the beginning. It's mentioned in the very first sermon he gave after Brahma convinced him to teach, what's usually called the Deer Park Sermon, because it was given in a deer park, in a forest, not unlike this, frequented by deer, as we are also sometimes. But mindfulness doesn't come up right away in this sermon. Buddha starts by describing the middle way, which is what he calls the path of avoiding life's extremes. As I mentioned, Buddha's life prior to his teaching, 
for those first 35 years was kind of a pendulum. But the key to awakening is not to hide from suffering, as Buddha did as a prince for his first 29 years, or to wallow in suffering, as he did in ascetic, as an ascetic for the next six years, but instead to somehow navigate in between. We can think of this as not avoiding suffering, but not courting suffering either, but accepting it and dealing with it and moving on. As this first sermon concludes, Buddha gets into a little more detail, and he explains eight parts of this middle way path. In order to find this middle way, we need to cultivate right views, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And Buddha doesn't go into much detail beyond enumerating these things. And here at the outset, it isn't clear that he considers mindfulness any more important than the other parts of the path. And that's pretty much it. That's the end of this first talk. Mindfulness is mentioned twice, but only toward the end. Only toward the end of that list of those eight important parts of practice. And actually, meditation as such is not really mentioned at all. If all you knew about Buddhism was that first sermon, you'd know it was about overcoming suffering. You'd know it was about the middle way. But you probably wouldn't think mindfulness and meditation, what we spent this morning doing, were all that important. But as Buddha expounded on these initial ideas as he continued teaching throughout India, mindfulness started to take a more central position. He gave several whole sermons just on this topic. And he came to declare the foundations of mindfulness to be what he called the direct path for the attainment of the true way. So why would mindfulness be any more important than right speech or right action? If you step outside the Buddhist context for a minute, it's not at all clear that this would be true. Mindfulness, after all, is a state of mind. Surely our actions cause more suffering than our thinking. We've all had the experience of causing suffering, either to ourselves or to others, either intentionally or unintentionally, through words and actions, something as simple as stubbing your toe or bumping into somebody. But can we really cause suffering with our minds? And of course, the answer is yes, we can. And we do this all the time. Let's start by asking what mindfulness itself really even means. The modern Buddhist scholar Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it as the clear and single-minded awareness of what actually happens to us in and at successive moments of perceptions. A more psychological definition would be the state of being attentive to and aware of what is taking place in the present. But again, in the absolute simplest terms, mindfulness just means paying attention. And that attention turns out to be the linchpin of Buddha's whole path. Because there's really no way to cultivate right speech without paying attention to how we are speaking. And there's no way to cultivate right action without paying attention to what we're doing. Without mindfulness, we're kind of stuck. It's like trying to follow a path, any path, in our sleep. 
And so Buddhism, which is our modern word for Buddhist teachings, what we traditionally would call the Dharma, Buddhism depends on being mindful, on paying attention. It's possible that Buddha didn't realize this at first, that it wasn't obvious that mindfulness was so important in that when he was giving that first lecture. Or it's also possible that he thought it was so obvious that he didn't need to explain it. But this is why we focus so much on mindfulness in Buddhist practice today. Because mindfulness is like the key that unlocks the whole path. But mindfulness turns out to be quite hard. Our world is filled with distractions. And these distractions aren't limited to things like our phones and screens, because mindfulness was hard even 2,500 years ago. That's part of why Buddha was worried that no one would understand, no one would be able to follow his path. And 2,500 years ago was not just before smartphones and computers, it was before paper. And still, mindfulness felt like an almost insurmountable problem. But luckily, Buddha developed these techniques to help us overcome these distractions. And those techniques really boil down to meditation, just what we've been practicing today. Meditation is the way we practice mindfulness. And I mean practice here very literally. We practice mindfulness the same way we might use simple finger exercises to practice piano. If you ever tried learning to play piano, or if you've had the experience of listening to a, a kid practice more recently, you know that practicing the piano is not the same as playing the piano. When we practice, we might hit the same few notes over and over again. We're developing muscle memory in our hands. We're training our minds to read the notes. And that's very different from playing music. It's the same with driving. You might practice driving in an empty parking lot or try to parallel park between two cones on a, on a quiet street. But you're not really driving until you go out into traffic. And meditation is the same way. The real fruits of meditation don't happen on these cushions. They happen out in the world. They happen when we can bring mindfulness into our lives, after we get up from our sitting here. And we meditate to prepare ourselves for that. Buddha gave very detailed instructions on how to meditate in some of these later lectures. And modern teachers have written whole books on some of those individual lectures that he gave. All the different schools of Buddhism have developed slightly different styles over the centuries. Here in our Zen tradition, we have our own style, sitting still with our eyes slightly open, facing a wall, often focusing on our breath. But these details are less important than the broader principle. The key is to sit mindfully, 
with total awareness. And to be clear, this is not just a mental awareness. It's a physical awareness, too. When you're sitting in meditation, you should feel yourself sitting, feel yourself breathing. You should notice the way the breath enters the body and leaves the body. You should feel it against your mouth or nose. You should notice the way your chest rises and falls. You should feel your chest rise and fall. It's common these days to hear people talk about how certain seemingly physical activities like tennis or golf are to a large extent mental. But the opposite is also true. We tend to think of meditation as a purely mental exercise, a way of quieting the mind, but it's also a physical activity. Meditation is not just some way of thinking. It's something we do with our bodies as much as our minds. It may seem a little strange that we focus on our breath in meditation, but you can think of your breathing as a sort of, almost a biological metronome, establishing a basic drumbeat of your existence. You might think that our heartbeat could serve that function too, but the problem is that most of us aren't aware we can't notice our individual heartbeats. Our breathing seems to lie at this kind of sweet spot between being both ever-present and fully knowable. But so how does this focus on our breath, this sitting still, bring us any closer to that awakening that the Buddha experienced? Again, I think of this analogy with the piano. All those finger exercises may sound monotonous, but they work their magic when you finally move to real music. And similarly, over time, by practicing mindfulness this way in meditation, we can bring that mindfulness into our daily lives. We may not be aware of every breath or every motion throughout the day, but we stop sleepwalking through our days, too. Gradually, we start to take this mindfulness with us off the cushion. As the Buddha says, when we walk, we become aware that we're walking. When we stand, we become aware that we're standing. When we sit again or we lie down, we become aware of our bodies there too. The goal, Buddha said, is to become one who acts with full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. That awareness we cultivate in meditation starts to manifest itself out there in the real world. This mindfulness begins to permeate our lives, whether at home, at work, at school, or anywhere. And it's that mindfulness that makes the rest of Buddha's Eightfold Path possible. We start naturally practicing right speech because we're mindful of the way our speech affects others. We start naturally practicing right action because we're mindful of the consequences of our actions. That mindfulness, again, becomes the key to the whole path. And everything flows from there. As Buddha taught, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows, like a never-departing shadow. And so thank you for coming and, and sitting with me and all of us here today.
it isn't easy to bring mindfulness into our daily lives. It's hard and it takes real practice. But Buddha's key insight, the real reason his teachings have survived so long, is that it's possible. That's the lesson of Buddha's life story. It's the record of one person who managed to walk this path, who was able to develop enough mindfulness through his meditation to truly wake up. He realized enlightenment. And if he can do it, we can too. Thank you. I think we have some time for questions before the lunch bell. Would you have liked if Buddha went back to real life and lived life, showing how to live life according to the rules rather than teaching? You mean if he had not become a monk? Yeah, I mean like one way to, one way to show is, one way to teach is to live and show rather than preach and not live. Well, Buddha did go on, uh, I mean, he did live a life. Um, he chose to live as a monastic. But he always had students who were uh, both monastics and lay people. His very first students were two, were two lay people who, uh, before he had even started teaching, heard that he was, uh, that there was an enlightened person and came and, and met with him. Um, and so it's, I think he felt that there were many ways to follow his example. Uh, but it's an interesting question. Had he simply gone back to, let's say, the palace and lived as an enlightened prince, uh, that would have been an interesting example too. But maybe not as many of us would have learned of his teachings. Um, so I think he found a nice balance by living his life as a teacher and helping many people follow his example. Um, I had a, just a comment about the word practice. He used the word practice. Um, uh, besides the way that you described it as um, preparation, so to speak, um, I've heard it. I've heard this meditation experience also described as practice in the context of, say, how a uh, physician would practice medicine, or a lawyer would practice law. In other words, um, practice. Yeah, it's a complicated word because it also means it means to prepare, but it also means to kind of manifest or express your, you know, your skill or your vocation or whatever. So uh, I, I like that. I like to think of it in that term as well as like we're practicing, like a like a, a doctor would practice medicine. We're practicing, you know, in that way as well. So that's, I just wanted to add that. Yes, I, I think that that's, uh, that's an excellent point. Uh, you know, the founder of our, our lineage in, in Japan, so Buddhism started in India, 
from India moved to China, from China moved to Japan, and then a teacher from Japan came and started this temple here, Kobenchino Odagawa Roshi. The founder of our lineage in Japan, in Japan Dogen, uh, that was one of his big uh, points of teaching that practicing as we do here is not merely a preparation for enlightenment, but it, it is enlightenment that we are, we are embodying when we sit still like this, when we sit in Zen meditation, we're actually embodying Buddha's teachings, practicing in that sense, um, uh, living the teachings. Um, I've experienced what I understood you to say, that the fruit of meditation is after the meditation. And uh, at the times I have found myself mindful, it, I'm aware I didn't achieve it. I was surprised by it. Yeah, I think many of us have that experience that, uh, you know, maybe sitting at a retreat, uh, your legs are hurting and your back is hurting and it, seems impossible to imagine that anything good could come of this. Um, but something does. Thank you for your comments about um, practice and the end of suffering. And I was wondering if you could expand a little bit about the relationship between the end of, loosely speaking, our own suffering. I know that in Buddhism we don't really think of ourselves as solid entities, but the end of our own suffering and the idea of compassion and the end for, of suffering for all sentient beings. Well, in Buddha's earliest teachings, um, he did seem a little more concerned with sort of personal suffering that we might each feel. And, and again, that was even his own uh, initial concern, was how to end suffering uh, in his own life. And you might see that, uh, that moment I described, his decision finally to teach, um, as the, the first point in which that started to shift a bit, because he realized it wasn't enough to, to realize these things himself. He had to help others realize them as well. And over time, that became more and more a focus and I think a realization that we can't truly relieve our own suffering without relieving everyone's suffering. And I'm sure we've all had that experience of seeing, seeing somebody suffer and it makes us suffer. It just can't, there's no way to be fully happy when you see other people are suffering. And that mindfulness I described includes this mindfulness of, of everyone around us, of the consequences of our actions, but even just of their own, uh, their own mental states. Uh, and so we can't help but act compassionately because their suffering really becomes our suffering as we become more and more aware of it, as we pay attention to it. Uh, and certainly that's an important part of our practice.
like your question, and uh, thank you for answering it. But could you expand on your question? I will try. Um, well, I guess one way to approach it, there are many ways to approach it, but um, maybe a, a quick thumbnail way to approach it might be discussing the distinction between uh, the Hinayana and Mahayana paths in Buddhism. So it seems to me that the older Buddhist traditions of Southeast Asia are more, and I please correct me because I'm a novice in these matters and I'm not a historian of Buddhism, but um, it, it seems that they are more focused on the, the path of individual ending of suffering, whereas Mahayana Buddhism, which is Zen, which is Tibetan Buddhism, and particularly maybe in full flower in Tibetan Buddhism that has very elaborate meditation practices of compassion, for self and others, that um, that is a that's a different kind of focus. So it could be that um, some of us, because of the circumstances of our lives, must put full effort into alleviating our own suffering. But in a sense, the aim of that is to liberate ourselves from suffering so that we can help to end the suffering of others. So in that way, for me, those two schools are related, even though they're separated by geography and history. That I, at least I view one as a stepping stone to the other, that in order to effectively help others end their suffering, you have to start with yourself, start by um, changing your mind to make it capable of compassion. That is one thing that I think that, you know, if we're gonna be ecumenical, that I think Tibetan Buddhism really focuses on a lot. Um, because they, their classes, their practices are very explicit about um, uh, desiring the end of your suffering, suffering of the people you love, the suffering of people who are neutral to you, and then suffering of people that you don't care for or that have harmed you. And it's harder each time, but it, that, pra that kind of practice kind of opens a door to wider ca capacity for compassion. It's an interesting practice. Um, and you know, I think that with the Zen practice, we want to go straight there through meditation. And I believe that path is also valid. It's just more explicit in, in the Tibetan practice, in, in my view. But I think they're related. Uh, and one one depends on builds on the other. And I would ask the teacher if I was in the ballpark or or I had you know hit a line drive over uh, the foul line. <laughs> uh, see, I, I think that the the difference between the practices is is somewhat mm -hmm. subtle. I, I think if the if the Theravadans really only believed in uh, in their own awakening, there would be no Theravadan teachers. They wouldn't, they wouldn't spend time teaching others and, and spreading the teachings. Uh, and so obviously they have some care for, for others as well. I think as you said, it's, it's about finding a balance between how much we need to focus on ourselves and how much we need to focus on others. You know, I think about the story that I mentioned that Buddha tells of someone who's struck by an arrow 
you know, probably the most important thing for that person is to get the arrow out before they die. Uh, because if they, if they don't, they'll have no ability to help anybody. Or it's, you know, if you've ever flown on an airplane and they tell you to, in an emergency, put your own mask on before you help others, that's not because they're preaching selfishness. It's because if you focus initially on getting everybody else's mask on, you might suffocate and then you can't help anybody. And so take a moment, put on your mask, and then focus on everybody around you. And so in some sense, the difference in these traditions comes down to exactly how long to focus on getting that mask on before you start focusing on everybody else, um, where the Theravadans would maybe focus longer uh, and the, the Mahayana uh, would more quickly move to helping others. But we all agree that in the long run, the important thing is for all of us to, to find awakening and to end suffering. Exercising compassionate Buddhism. Is that something new or different from the tradition? Well, Thich Nhat Hanh is an example of someone who particularly emphasizes compassion. Um, again, I would say it's a matter of emphasis. The, I think compassion has been part of Buddhism from the beginning. Uh, it was re-emphasized or, or more greatly emphasized in the Mahayana traditions that spread to China and Japan and Vietnam. Um, and then some teachers today especially uh, emphasize it. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's a new teaching exactly. It's, it's, he's a teacher though that particularly places emphasis on uh, loving kindness and compassion as, as an immediate practice. In this context, it might be useful, um, Dan, to kind of expand on the word dukkha and what we call suffering. And concurrently, um, maybe what its um, apparent op opposite is, you know, what is happiness in the context of, of the Buddha way. So. Yeah. So we, we, don't, we don't know exactly what language Buddha spoke, but he, the earliest of his teachings come to us in Pali, this uh, old Indian language, which is the language that was first written, his teachings were first written down in. And there, there's this word dukkha, which we typically translate as suffering. Um, but it can mean many things. It, it, some people even translate it just as, as stress. Uh, it sort of, or unease, um, but you can think of it as meaning all the things that prevent us from from sort of equanimity, from calmness, from ease. Uh, and so the opposite, what what I have been calling happiness, is maybe better thought of as that sort of calm. Um, it's not necessarily sort of jubilant excitement. It's uh, that feeling of ease that we sometimes get when we 
we don't feel we have worries waiting, waiting us down. And so, you know, when Buddha taught this end of suffering, he wasn't saying we would never feel any pain, that nothing bad would ever happen to us. You know, I mentioned causing suffering by stubbing your toe. Well, you can still stub your toe, uh, even if you're enlightened. But it just won't bother you as much. It'll happen, you'll notice it happens, and you move on to the next thing. Uh, you won't stress about it. Uh, again, he used this example of being struck by an arrow. That suffering, it's like we're struck by an arrow and that hurts. And then we get really mad that somebody shot this arrow at us. And it's almost like we're struck by a second arrow um, in that sort of anger and resentment. And so awakening and enlightenment, it doesn't mean we'll never be struck by an arrow, but it means we won't be struck by those second arrows. We won't be, we won't have that anger around it. Anyway, that bell means that lunch is ready, so I don't want to keep you longer. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.